As summer comes to a close, it's more likely that orders of cold beers will turn into orders of hot toddies. But regardless of your drink of choice, there are no shortage of places in New York City to throw one back. I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape. In her book, The History and Stories of the Best Bars of New York, Jeff Klein gives a unique glimpse inside some of the city's most noteworthy bars and how they came to be what they are today. Jeff, thanks for taking the time to talk with me. Great to be here again, George. So what inspired you to write a book about the history of some of New York City's best bars? Well, in every corner of New York, there's history, and on every corner, there's a bar. That's my motto. I worked for 14 years in the restaurant industry, and then I studied history. So when the chance to write this book came, I took it and was glad for it because it was a great experience. Who are among the more interesting bartenders or bar owners that you met in the making of this book? Oh, wow. Well, I love J.M.O. McManus at Peter McManus Cafe, which is one of my favorite bars in the city, just because it's one of those great, real New York-Irish neighborhood bars that helped make New York a city of neighborhoods. And his dad was a terrific bartender, and he was he's a great bartender and bar owner himself. They're a real part of the community, and they always have been since they've been there in Chelsea. I love meeting Adam Weprin at the Bridge Cafe, but it's closed now. Unfortunately, it's been closed since Sandy, but that place was the oldest bar in town, and I'm hoping it's be open because it's a terrific piece of New York history that's been kind of put on hold for a while. Now, isn't that considered the oldest bar in New York City, the Bridge Cafe? Yeah, it was until Sandy came along. Um, it's still waiting to reopen. I was just down there the other day, but it's not open yet. So right now, Francis Tavern is the oldest, 1762. It opened the Ear Inn, which is still open, and um, Pete's Tavern on 18th Street and McSorley. That's the oldest ones right now. How many bars are featured in this book? Uh, There were 30 bars in the book. How did you go about choosing the bars to feature? Yeah, that's a tough one because there's always favorites that everyone would like to see in there and don't make it in. I actually interviewed 50 different bar owners and bartenders and managers. 30 made it in, and seven have closed since the book was published. Yeah, the book was published back in 2006? Yeah, and it's been reprinted three times. Uh, The last reprint was in 2013. Prohibition, no doubt, plays a significant role in the history of bars in New York City. How did the city's bars weather that storm, the storm of Prohibition? Well, you talk about Sandy giving them a hit. Prohibition gave them a tremendous hit, too. And, you know, being New York uh, and being New Yorkers, they were very resourceful in figuring out a way around the 18th Amendment. So one of the, And also at the time when Prohibition was first put into effect, because it was a federal law, What the federal government realized, you know, with the revenuers down south that were hiding their stills and with all of the speakeasies up north in the northern cities is that local governments and police agencies didn't really give much credence to this new federal law. And you're talking about a population where the mayor, Jimmy Walker's father, owned several apartment buildings and bars, and he knew virtually every bar owner and tavern keeper in Manhattan having grown up on 11th Street. So, I mean, the sympathy for the police department and even the administration was not particularly pro-federal. And the federal government really, after a few years, had to come in and really crack down. So 
So the ways that they got around it was, was very comical. They were like something out of a comedy movie. They would put a funeral parlor on the front and put a speakeasy downstairs and in the back, or a lot of places uh, would run tea parlors or coffee houses, I guess we'd call them now. And, um, you know, you'd, they were called cup joints, and there were numerous ones in the village. In fact, the 21 Club started as a cup joint. The guys that started 21 when they were in college, one was a student at NYU, Jack Crimler, and his cousin Charlie Burns, and they started uh, a cup joint and called the Red Head. And basically it was tea cups, and they pour whiskey in it. You paid by the ounce, and, you know. Everything would be dumped out the back if anybody came in. So they, they found ways to get around it. And uh, and then McSorley's had permission to serve near beer during Prohibition. So they were actually open legally during Prohibition. So there were ways to get around it. They found a way around it, and then thank God they repealed it. <laughs> the White Horse Tavern did not hide the fact that they were open during Prohibition, though, right? Yeah, I mean, this is the thing, you know, they had... Uh, the White Horse Tavern was in the same neighborhood that Jimmy Walker grew up in. And you're talking about police department that's going to be very looking the other way and not even taking bribes. They all drank there and weren't there. Many places just like, like the Bridge Cafe basically stayed open but might ditch things or hide them, when obviously, when those federal agents came through. But in terms of being afraid of local police, there was really very little fear as far as I was able to find out. You mentioned the 21 Club, and you opened the book with the 21 Club on West 52nd Street in Manhattan. And you say this about it, even in a city filled with rags-to-riches stories, 21 stands out as a riches-to-riches story. How so? Well, the brothers who started it, Jack Crindler and Charlie Burns, weren't poor when they opened it. And they, they opened it after running their cup joint and a couple of other speakeasies, the Punch and, and the, and the Fronton. The front and um, they realized that the way to make money and to make a reputation was to cater to the upscale crowd and that there was a real market for that. I think in a funny way, you know, before Prohibition, upper-class people probably drank more at home or with their friends or in clubs, and Prohibition kind of brought them out into speakeasies, and they mingled with the lower classes, and so there was a need for creating a public space where the upper classes could feel comfortable and at home. And that's the genius of 21. They found out the formula 70, more than 75 years ago, and they've stuck with it, and they're still there today. For some New York City bars in history, prostitution was also part of the formula, right? Bars and brothels went hand-in-hand hand for a while. Yes, they did. <laughs> uh, they sure did. And, it, you know, people forget that, you know, especially the hotel bars, you know, when you're talking about beds upstairs and the bar downstairs, well, there's a natural fit. <laughs> but, yeah, when you look at a place like the Ear Inn, which started out, you know, as very historically significant, it was the home to James Brown, who was a free black and an aide to George Washington. He built his house in 1817. He was a tobacco trader and prosperous. And then when he died, somewhere in the mid-19th century, it became a bar with a brothel upstairs, and it's a very typical, I mean, the Bridge Cafe also. You know, they would be renting out single rooms, but basically among them would be longshoremen, barrel makers, rope makers, and prostitutes. They all live side by side in these riverfront places, and so it was a part of, of the scene. 
And then you have a more elaborate place like O'Neill's down on Grand Street, which was built right across the street from the police department. Um, back at when the police department is located downtown there, and, and there's a tunnel built um, from the police department going into O'Neill's. Huh. And uh, this is when Teddy Roosevelt was the police chief, <laughs> although we don't have any proof that he ever went there. The reason was that um, a lot of reporters would sit in this bar and wait for... Um, people to be brought into the police department and run out. And then upstairs was a very elaborate brothel. And wow. the tunnel went from the police department and came behind the bar so that people in the bar wouldn't see anyone coming and going. And it went to the back staircase that went directly into brothel. If the so walls if could at, talk, huh? Huh? If the walls could talk. Oh, if the walls could talk. Yeah, they'd, they'd be singing quite a tune. <laughs> <laughs> Which bar would you say has had the most notable patrons over the years? Oh, gosh. That is a tough question. Um, well, you know, it's almost like which has this kind of storied past to it and history to it. If you look at a place like Francis Tavern, which is so historically significant, Alexander Hamilton, George Washington, John Knox, John Jay, I mean, that's pretty notable. But then you look at places like J.G. Mellon's, where, you know, JFK and Jackie and Grace Kelly frequented back in the day. You know, they'd go slumming on the Upper East Side and get their burgers at the bar, or P.J. Clark, where, you know, Frank Sinatra used to go. And, you know, these kinds of places that attracted everyone. And, of course, the Cedar Tavern, which was the seat of bohemian art and culture in the mid-century, Jackson Pollock, Willem de Kooning, Mark Roscoe, everybody from in the front abstract expressionistic movement, and Jack Kerouac, who got kicked out for peeing in an ashtray. <laughs> um, but, you know, it, these are the kinds of people that were coming and going to New York City. So whether you're talking about the history of the founding of the country or you're talking about the, the founding of an art movement or, or literary movement, like the Round Table and the Algonquin Hotel with Dorothy Parker and Robert Benchley, it's, it's from generation to generation, all the stars went out to all the bars in New York. That said, celebrities haven't always received preferential treatment at the bars in New York City, right? You share a great story about Grace Kelly at J.G. Mellon's. She had to wait. She had to wait for a table, and she had to drink out of a Heineken bottle. <laughs> oh, the humanity. <laughs> oh, the humanity. You know, this is like a... First world problem or aristocratic problem, I guess. Some bars are so great you never want to leave. In fact, the late poet Dylan Thomas is rumored to have never left the White Horse Tavern, right? He supposedly haunts the place. Yeah, he supposedly haunts it, but I think uh, it's more the English and literary uh, art students that haunt the place, <laughs> his ghost and his inspiration. But he did die after drinking there, but they carried him out. I think they carried him to the apartment upstairs, actually. Which bar would you say has the most stunning interior? I know Bemelman's has some great artwork, Bemelman's in the Carlisle Hotel. Yes, yes, it does. It has those beautiful murals that were painted by Ludwig Bemelman's, who did the Madeline books, and they're very charming. I like the King Cole Bar, too, which is featured on the cover and has beautiful murals in there as well from the 1920s, actually. But then, you know, you look at the Ear Inn, which... The interior of it isn't stunning, but it takes you back. It's like you just step back in time to the 
early 19th and late 18th century because the building is so old and because they've had to dig and, and redo the basement several times and have found some wonderful artifacts. So, you know, at the other end of the spectrum, it's this terrific interior that, that has a lot of atmosphere. Bars here in New York City and really around the country offer a place of solace for people. We saw that here in New York City during 9-11, a lot of people heading to their local bar. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, throughout time, that's where people turn to when there was a big event going on, whether it was a major storm, whether it was a catastrophic event like 9-11 or something disturbing but not as, as tragic. The like blackouts the of 65 and right. 77, yeah. Yeah. The blackout of 65 was a big blackout. I mean, it lasted several days, and a lot of the bars just what they did, like, just gave away first thing they did was give away the milk. So they would send out word to all the mothers to come down to the corner and get the milk because it was going to go bad. And then they just would open up. They didn't, because they, you know, they didn't bother charging. It was sort of like a holiday thing in 65, really. 77, a little different, but they still, the refrigeration was out. So many neighborhood bars gave, gave out food for free and drink for free. Jeff, thanks so much for your time. Thank you very much, George. It was a pleasure. That was Jeff Klein. Her book, The History and Stories of the Best Bars of New York, is published by Turner Press. This is Cityscape. Hello once again. I'm George Borarki. Mick Sorley's is said to be the oldest Irish pub in New York City. Shane Buggy tends bar there, but we asked him to put down the beer mugs for a moment and chat with us. Shane, thanks for doing that. No problem, George. So how long have you been tending bar now at McSorley's? I'm one of the new uh, bartenders at McSorley's. I've been here seven years. Seven years. So how long have some of the others been there? The longest serving bartender here started in 1972. Wow, that's some longevity. Yeah, and then the rest of them are all based. Like, uh, there's two new guys. There's myself and one other guy who's been here for eight years. And then the next bartender was hired before us is 25 years ago. Wow. So what's it like to be the new guy there? It's it, it, it's good, you know. It, it's uh, it's good. I'm working for my cousin. It's um, I've got big shoes to fill working underneath uh, Jeffrey Bartholomew and uh, Steve uh, Zwarczuk. He the two bartenders have been here the longest, but uh, it's great, you know. The history in the bar is fantastic, and uh, every day is different here, so uh, it always brings a new challenge and meeting new people. So it, it's fantastic. I love it here. What can you tell me about the history of McSorley's? Well, McSorley's is uh, 161 years old. It opened up in 1854. It was a men-only bar until 1970 and when two female lawyers took us to court. And it's actually called McSorley Law. In 1970, it was the first time women were allowed into McSorley's. The bar is based on traditions. Uh, nothing ever changes here. From the day that John McSorley died, uh, Bill McSorley named, renamed the bar uh, McSorley's to commemorate his father and actually nailed everything to the walls that nothing would change here. So what it generally goes up on the wall stays here, nothing really changes. We have artifacts like Harry Houdini's handcuffs, uh, an original wanted poster for John Wills Booth, London Times talking about Napoleon and Wellington coming up to the Battle of Waterloo, uh, the newspaper announcing Abraham Lincoln's death, and the chair of Abraham Lincoln when he sat in here in uh, 1860 after his right makes might speech in Cooper Union. So Abraham Lincoln actually frequented McSorley's, huh? I wouldn't say frequented. I'm pretty sure he just came here once. Just came there um, once, okay. a tradition for, for president, presidential candidates to uh, branch out to the, uh, preach out to the people. And uh, Peter Cooper was a regular here. He did frequent here, the founder of Cooper Union, where the speech took part. And he, um, he brought Abraham Lincoln here once the speech ended. 
Wow. And I just came over to meet some of the regulars in John McSorley's time in 1860. So who are among the other notables who have hung out at McSorley's? Well, you name it, they've been here. Um, but like everyone says, presidents been here. No president has ever been here. They were always here before they were president, like Teddy Roosevelt who was here. When he was a police commissioner, FDR would have been here when he was governor. JFK was here when he got out of the Navy. And then, like, uh, more recent times, we've had the New York Giants, uh, Peter Dinklage, Kevin Space, you name it. They've, they've all, uh, Charlie Sheen even uh, came here fairly regularly back in the 90s. So how would you describe the atmosphere at McSorley, Shane? It can be quite ambient, pretty chilled from... Uh, on a week, on a Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, to absolute bedlam on a Friday, Saturday night. You can get crazy here, but there's never any trouble here. We have a motto here that we enforce, uh, be good or be gone. So the minute somebody starts causing trouble, they're out of here. We don't take any exceptions. You also have another motto, right? We were here before you were born. We were. <laughs> yeah, we were here, but we had a few of them. There was, we were here before you were born, and before women were allowed in here, our most famous one was... Uh, Good ale, raw onions, no ladies. Raw onions, huh? Yeah, that was on our cheese plate. Uh, it was a tradition of uh, Irish bars, bars in general, back in the 1800s to give away a free lunch. And uh, our free lunch would have been our, uh, like, a little bit of cheese, some raw onions, and some saltines, and we still serve that dish today. So you can still get raw onions at McSorley's? Yes, on everything. <laughs> we put it on everything, but it's, it's fantastic. Again... Like, we don't change anything here. It even goes to the point when in 1970, ladies were allowed in here. Uh-huh. The former owner, his name was Daniel uh, O'Connell, and he left the bar to his daughter, Doherty. And uh, when women were allowed in here, in 19, oh, when women were finally allowed in here in 1970, she actually owned the bar before that. So a woman owner, there was a woman owner who still wouldn't step in here during operating hours. She came in after the bar closed to collect wow. her money. and. After her father died, she promised them that she wouldn't set foot in the place. And even after women were allowed in the bar in 1970, she still wouldn't uh, come into the bar to respect her father's wishes. Now that's respecting tradition, huh? Yeah, like even people all want to leave something behind them uh, in McSorley's. We even have uh, uh, human remains behind the bar. One of our old-time regulars used to take care of the bar, um, Bobby Bowles. He left his whiskey flask here, and his family left a little bit, a little piece of him behind here, which huh. is fantastic. Now, here you are, Shane, a new, relatively new bartender at McSorley's, yet you know all of this history. Is that a requirement of the bartenders? It's not really. Um, generally, when uh, customers come in here and start asking questions, and of course, then I have, to fi- I have to start asking questions to find out what's going on, like where did this come from and that. I know probably about 85% of the things on the wall. Um, I still wouldn't know, like all of it, there's a couple of bartenders here who will be able to name every single thing, where it came from, who it came from, it's it's amazing, you know, one of the bartenders here is Jeffrey Bartholomew, he's actually written two poetry books about the bar, and he pretty much, he, he took pictures of the bar throughout the years, he's, he's been here four decades, and he's taken pictures every year he's been here just to see the slight changes in, in, in the years that he's been here, which is fantastic. I detect a bit of an accent there, Shane, huh? Yeah, I'm from Ireland. How long have you been in the States? Seven years. I came over for the job. So how does McSorley's compare to pubs back in Ireland? So this is one thing. I've been uh, like, oh, I've been around a lot of Europe, uh, a lot of the, uh, the bars in the States. I've, just, just, I've always been a tradition of mine just to go to different bars, the oldest bars in particular, just to see um, what they have to offer. And one thing that drives me crazy is when you go into an old bar and they've modernized. You know, they have 
20 TVs on the walls, like all the liquor you can have, and, you know, karaoke on Wednesday nights, which one of the oldest bars in the country actually has. It's drives me crazy. Exodies has never changed for customers. They've always kept it the same way. If it's not broken, don't fix it. Shane, thanks so much for your time. You're very welcome. Shane Buggy bartends at McSorley's and is co-owner of another bar called The Copper Still in the East Village. Our next guest is also a bartender and a record-holding one at that. Sheldon Wiley is the world's fastest bartender, according to Guinness World Records. Sheldon, thanks for taking the time to talk with me. Absolutely my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So do you still hold the Guinness World Record for most drinks made in an hour? I certainly do. And in fact, a couple of years ago, it was actually broken by a guy out in Las Vegas. And uh, it blew my mind that somebody broke the record because I thought that it was going to stand for, for much longer. And um, so basically, I just I went back to the drawing board. And thankfully, I kind of got some helpful hints as to how he broke my record. And then I just destroyed his record with some of his knowledge that he used. So so it, it it went from 1,003 to he did over 1,500, and then I came back and did 1,905. So I, I pretty much I, I doubled the record almost anyway uh, from what I previously had uh, last time we spoke. When did you first break the record? Uh, in March of 2011, and then I rebroke it again in March of 2014. How did you learn to make drinks so fast? Well... You know, it, it was it was more or less out of necessity. I believe that, you know, especially where I came up behind the bar, I was in a college town across from Arizona State University, in fact, in Arizona. And, you know, college kids aren't the biggest tippers in the world. They don't have a whole lot of money. So it was it was very high volume. And you knew that it was one of those things, and it was kind of a simple, simple formula that you figured out that the more drinks you serve, the more money you make. And it was really that, and you just kind of work on your hand speed from there. And I think there's a learning curve, too. There's also a matter of preparation and being organized. Uh, that certainly helps with your with your speed. I mean, preparation is absolutely everything, and, and, the, and the less that you have to stop and look around or, you know, get change or – or if you run out of this or that or something's not where it, it's supposed to be, you know, to, to work at, at a very high level consistently, I just believe that everything has a place and, and, and has a home and, and you can almost bartend with your eyes closed. What inspired you, Sheldon, to compete for the world record? What inspired me was that throughout my career I was always, you know, told – you know, in, in various different ways, like, dude, you're so fast. You're the fastest. Uh, you have the fastest hands I've ever seen. You're like an engine. Honestly, it fed my ego a little, a little younger on. But I was like, well, let's let's get this on paper. I I actually want to know, and I want to see how fast I really am. And but I want to be able to do it with uh, quality ingredients and and you know demonstrate a little. Let's just say the, the the cocktail movement or resurgence was uh, was was big the first time around for um, for my for my first world record. So, you know, I just got to I just got to digging around and, and researching on the web, and, and and I came across this record, and I said, you know what, I got this in the bag, and I gave it a shot, and it was a lot of work to, to give it a shot, and the very first one I actually did not complete it. I 
I failed. I failed miserably in front of friends and family and media, and um, but I needed that. It was a good kick in the pants, and and and, and really, uh, really good for my sense of humility, <laughs> I should say. And and uh, you know, I, I just like I did with this last one, I went back to the drawing board and I figured out how. And it, basically, I figured out what it takes to be a champion, and really, I need to be knocked on my seat. So. As far as the competition, are you mixing just one drink or a whole lot of different drinks? Well, you're making multiple different kinds of drinks, but you're making the one drink at a time. So you can't make the same drink more than once, and you can't make, you can't make more than one drink at a time, and each drink is a minimum of, of three ingredients. And in my case, I used four ingredients because I'm an overachiever, apparently. Um, because I wanted all these drinks to taste good because they did, in fact, go out to friends, family, media, et cetera. So all these drinks went out to the audience. So I wanted them to taste good. For anybody that was going to do a write-up on me, I didn't want them to just have some run-of-the-mill drink. But, you know, at, at, at that pace, who's to say that all of them taste good? I would imagine that not all of them were on point. What's the most challenging drink to make as a bartender, would you say? You know, to be honest with you, I don't find a whole lot of complexity in cocktails anymore. I think as long as, I think really as long as 95% of the prep work is done in the kitchen, I believe that, you know, that prep work should be treated like you would food at a restaurant. And so it's quick on the out. So when it's ordered, you can, you know, you have a number of steps and, and, and those number of steps, you know, aren't five or more, and, and that you can really get these drinks out that, that do have these complex ingredients, perhaps, but you really simplify the process when you have, you know, 30 people in front of you and everybody needs a drink. So, I, you know, I, I, think that, I think that the important thing is making sure all the prep work is, is on point, and that goes back to the preparation and being organized, and I just don't find any drink really hard to make, to be honest with you. How feverishly are you working behind the bar on any given day? Are you always working to make drinks as fast as you can? I have one speed. <laughs> I do not have a slow. I do not have a medium. I have I have high, and, and, and I'm on full blast. If there's two people in front of me, if there's 20 people in front of me, if there's 200 people in front of me, one of my biggest pet peeves as, as a patron, much less a bartender, is having to wait. So in, in nine times out of ten, all I want is a beer. <laughs> and so if, if I have to wait whatsoever, um, well, for an extended period of time, obviously you've got to be realistic to, to your surroundings. But, you know, I, I just I, I lose interest in the establishment. And a lot of times I'll, I'll leave and I'll go somewhere else. I think that it's important that these people are coming out. They're spending, especially here in New York City, spending a lot of money and hard-earned money on an experience and to be able to get a really good quality drink in a timely fashion is a part of that, part of that experience. And, and though you don't always have control of the ambiance or the conversations around you, you know, you can at least highlight that one aspect and do it well. And I just think that's super important. I know a few years ago you were on a mission to bartend in all 50 states in 50 days. Did you complete that task? You know what? I have not. I have not. And, uh, I completed a, a, a different task instead. I found out right before, well, I, I think, you know, months in advance to, to gearing up for this, for this challenge that uh, I had a baby on the way. <laughs> so I actually had a son instead. 
So it's just been put on hold. It's uh, it's, it's something that that uh, that we plan on doing. You know, maybe maybe it's funny. Everything kind of happens in March with me. It seems like, but we're really looking at March of next year uh, to make this tour happen. But you know, it, I, it, my first son, my first kid. It just it, it was important for me to uh, to yeah. To, a pretty good reason to put that on yeah, hold. Yeah, <laughs> take the time and be a good dad. <laughs> so where are you tending bar these days? Uh, right now, um, I'm actually on a Hilton property at the Conrad Hotel at a beautiful rooftop. You know, I, I, was, I was working for myself for a very long time and staying very busy at it. But when you're doing all this hands-on consulting work and opening up bars, restaurants, and nightclubs for people... You're you're practically working as an owner through the project management all the way to payroll and recruitment and all that stuff and and uh, it it was it was time for me to take a summer and just do what I know do what I love do what I'm good at and just make some drinks and put some smile on people's faces so so yeah right now I'm at the uh, the Conrad Hotel um, uh, at the rooftop. I find it interesting that the world's fastest bartender just wants a beer. Earlier you said that you just want a beer, huh? You know, it's 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 interesting. I love a good classic cocktail. I don't really anticipate, like, I don't go out of my way to get one when I go out. I guess I just really like beer. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't really have, like, a, a, a really super cool answer for you on that. Sheldon, thanks so much for your time. And thank you so much for having me once again. That was Sheldon Wiley. He's in the Guinness Book of World Records as the fastest bartender. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. Past episodes of the show are available in our archives at wfuv.org slash cityscape. You can also subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter for show updates and New York City tidbits. I'm George Boracki. My thanks to producers Taylor Nolk and Claire Drake. It's WFUV and WFUV HD New York. Listener-supported public media from Fordham, the Jesuit University of New York. Music discovery starts here.